The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. I'm excited to share God's Word with you. It's a punchy and powerful one today. And I'm especially proud of all of you because you made it to church on Daylight Saving Sunday. So that's really, that's really something. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, we love you. Uh, we need you so much, Lord. Uh, we want to be submissive to you. We want to have open hearts to hear what you have to say. And we want that word, Lord, to, to change us, uh, to transform us. So we pray, Lord, as we spend this time together now in your word, that you would bless it that you would speak to everyone who hears, um, that we would know who we are and that we would be transformed more and more um, according to what you want to do in us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews and we heard amazing things last week, didn't we? If you're here last week, we heard amazing things. We heard, number one, we remembered we, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are beloved children of God. It's something you can never let go of or never forget. Without that knowledge, you can't live the Christian life. Beloved children of God, we're already celebrating that this morning. But we also heard that because we are loved, our wise heavenly Father will sometimes use suffering to train and discipline us for our good. It's a, it's a sobering message, but it's also so meaningful, so encouraging that even in suffering, it's not like it's chaotic or accidental. God's working in our lives to train us for our good. But do you remember what he said our good is? What's God's definition of your good? Anyone remember? It's holiness. It's holiness. That's God's definition of your good, that you would be uh, devoted to him, set apart for him, that you would display his character in your hearts and your minds and your lives. So here's a question for our passage today. If these things are true, our, our God has adopted us through Jesus Christ, we're his children, and he's working in our lives to make us holy even through suffering, here's the question for today. How should we respond to that together as a community? Okay, we know this. Now what? What do we do with it now as a community? Because the reality is we're going to face difficulty. We know God's working in that for our holiness. So what do we do together in response? And as we're going to see in our passage, we have a responsibility to one another because of this truth. And it kind of makes sense, right? If, if God's adopted me as his child and he loves me, and if God's adopted you as his child and he loves you, what should be in my heart towards you? It's the same love. Moreover, if we know that God's good desire for us is holiness, right? And if I love you, let's remember what love does. Love gives itself up for the best interest of the other, the one who is loved. So if your best interest is holiness and I love you, then what, I'm, what am I going to want for you? Holiness. What are you going to want for me? Holiness. Friends, that's actually love. It's love. And so here's what we need to see in this passage, our responsibility to one another, and then we have this series of various ways we accomplish that responsibility. And then third, we have the power and motivation for that responsibility. So we're going to think about our responsibility, various ways we are to accomplish that responsibility, 
and the power and motivation for that responsibility. So here we go. We're going to look at 12 to 13 to see our responsibility. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but be healed. What does that mean? Well, these, uh, the author's been using illustrations from athletics to understand the Christian life, right? We've heard that. So the Christian life is like running a race, or it's like fighting even in a boxing match. And so then you think of running, or you think of boxing, and then you think of your hands and your knees. You're talking about your, your form or your posture, right? Or then there's a make straight paths for your feet. If, if you run a race, do you want an obstacle course? you want hidden potholes? No, you want it to be smooth, or if you're going to fight a fight, do you want barbed wire, well-placed stones? No, you want, it, you want a clean field. So you've got posture, you've got the field, and we start thinking, okay, what does this mean? What's the point of the illustration? Well, hands up. Hands up. I guess it works for running or boxing. What does it mean if you're hands up? You're engaged. You're, you're awake to it. You're aware. You're you're, you're striving, you're seeking, you're active. You're living this, you're running the race, you're fighting the fight. Uh, weak knees. Well, we can imagine what that is. Biblically, it's probably in our language too. You got weak knees, what, how are you feeling? You're afraid. You're afraid. Remember the, the context of this book, right? These are people marginalized, persecuted for their faith in Christ. Scary things can happen in that situation, So you're tempted to not follow Christ faithfully due to the possible consequences. And so to to strengthen weak knees is to give one another courage. That God is sovereign. He's active. His promises are true that we can walk through suffering together with courage. So here you see this responsibility already, right? Help each other live the Christian life. Walk with each other. Get our our hands up. Get our knees strong. It's, It's encouragement. It's engagement. And what about clearing the field? Well, in this illustration, the, the field's the context for your, for your race, for your fight. So it's, it's kind of like your lifestyle. It's your, it's your lifestyle context. And he, and he talks about things that are lame. So I guess it could, be parts of your, it could be parts of your life. It could be people in our community who, it's not like you're so lame. It's... Um, it's you're maybe in you have aspects of your life or some people are, are less mature in following Christ or are deeply struggling with this issue or that issue. And the danger is if the field's not clear, what is lame is going to get even worse and go out of joint. Have any of you ever had a shoulder go out of joint? I mean, you're, you're done. If your hip goes out of joint, you're done. And so it's the idea that we want to be careful that what is weak doesn't go all the way to dislocate it. So what does that mean? We want to clear the field so that what is weak can be healed. So here's the bottom line. We have a responsibility to help one another, like the beginning of the chapter said, throw off everything that entangles. Throw off everything in our lifestyles that impede us from following Jesus with endurance. Let's clear that field for one another. Sometimes you got to say to somebody, hey, this thing in your life, that's like a hidden pothole for your relationship with Jesus. 
Let's clear that field so we can run the race. Hands up, strong knees, a clear field. But the point is, we have a responsibility to one another to join with one another in what God is doing in our lives. And he is going to use suffering to make us holy, which means we have to walk with one another in suffering, encouraging one another, helping one another keep our eyes on Christ, and and moving towards the kind of life that honors God in every way. So what, what do you think of that? I mean, on one hand, I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for the hundreds and hundreds of ways. So many of you do that all the time. Good at walking with people and suffering. Good at caring about them. Good at speaking God's truth to them, encouraging them. But even as I read this passage, I'm convicted. Maybe you are too. Couldn't, could you do more? And some of us aren't living this out in any way at all. Maybe this is brand new for you to realize this is actually, if you're a Christian, part of your responsibility is to let others walk with you, to walk with others in and through, especially suffering, for the sake of holiness. It's our responsibility. So, of course, we see, and I think we feel it more than ever in our day, it's so essential to belong to a genuine Christ-centered community that wants to follow Jesus together no matter what. We need it so desperately. It's part of our responsibility. Now we're going to start to look at ways we keep this responsibility. I'll go ahead and warn you ahead of time, it's pretty countercultural. It's pretty countercultural. And I think we'll all get bumped a little bit with some of these. We'll start with verse 14. These are, these are commands, okay? If you are God's child, and if you want to follow Jesus, and if you're a part of his church, this is what we do. This is it right here. First word, verse 14, strive. What does strive mean? You're pursuing it. You want it. You're going after it. You're active in it. And then strive for, some of you didn't see this coming. Here it is. Strive for what? Peace. Peace. What is peace? Well, especially, I'm sure it's in the context of relationships, right? It's in the context of relationships, relationships of harmony, tranquility, unity, understanding, acceptance, as far as you can, especially in the church, of course. But even here in this verse, strive for peace with whom? Did you see it? Verse 14, strive for peace with the people you especially like. (laughs) Strive for peace with the people who agree with you about cultural situations. Strive for peace with who? Everyone. And it's really kind of shocking. These are people who are being persecuted and marginalized. Ask ask yourself, how would you tend to feel about those who are persecuting you (laughs) or marginalizing you or speaking evil about you? Don't like them. Don't you think it's easy then in that context to be full of self-pity or bitterness or self-righteousness or even vengeance? And that does not honor the gospel. What did Jesus say even about those who are nailing him to a cross? Father, forgive them. What did Jesus say? Love your enemy. 
So Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 9, you've heard it, but let's remember it. If you're a child of God, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Of course, there's a lot of wisdom that goes into how you make peace in this situation or that situation. We know, you read Romans, peace is a two-way street, right? Paul, there Paul says, and as far as it's up to you, it's, sometimes other people won't have it. Uh, we know that. It, it's difficult to figure out what this means, but we just need to be careful. And I think this is a, true in our day as it was in theirs. We need to be careful that righteous anger about all the evils we see in this world, and there are many, We need to be careful that righteous anger does not become an excuse for us to disobey Jesus with a lack of striving for peace. Children of God are peacemakers. We want peace. We work towards peace. Does that mean we don't don't speak the truth? Of course not. This whole book is him speaking the truth. Doesn't mean we don't have boundaries in our life. Of course we have boundaries in our life. We want to be holy. But you see the point. Isn't it easy to forget this, to forget about it, to to think, oh, I'm past that now? No, you've got to strive for peace. Next thing to strive for, strive for holiness. Strive for holiness. What is holiness? You should be able to unpack this in your mind. I hope you can grab onto this because you're supposed to strive for this. This is what God's doing in your life. What's he want in your life? Holiness. What is it? What is it? In the, in, the, in the old days, it was kind of like a feel on legalism, like don't play cards or don't go to a movie. Is that holiness? No way. No way. That's not what it is. What, let's start at the heart. What's holiness? Holiness is a devotion to God. That's what holiness is, a devotion to God. It's, it's to be set apart for and to him in that devotion. And I actually think marriage is a decent illustration here. So I'm married to my wife, and we have an exclusive relationship, right? So I belong to my wife as her husband in a way I belong to no other woman ever in that same way. So in that idea, I'm holy to her, and she's holy to me, set apart for a certain kind of devotion. And of course, that should show itself in how I relate to her and how I relate to others, right? If you're a Christian, you are set apart to belong to God and to be more devoted to him than anyone or anything else. He alone is your God, and that should show itself in how you live. There ought to be a powerful thirst in you to know him, to love him from the heart, and to please him above all others. Strive. For holiness. And you see why it's so important. Did you, did you see what he said? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Um, I heard Kevin DeYoung give an, an illustration um, between how Christians view holiness and how Christians view camping. So I'll, I'll try it out on you. So my family likes to go backpacking, okay? Some of you, some friends hear that, and they're like, okay, weirdo, whatever floats your boat, right? Why the voluntary suffering? Go ahead if you like. But that's optional, right? It's optional, a little strange. And of course, I agree. I want you to know backpacking is optional. You are welcome not to do it. 
But Kevin says, and I think it works as an illustration, he says some Christians think of holiness like they think of backpacking. It's for the weird backpacking Christians. Holiness is for the extreme Christians. I'm a more like normal kind of grace, let go and let God Christian. People say, that holiness, that's great for you, but I'm not so into it. The point of this little illustration is holiness is not optional, like backpacking is optional. Yes, holiness will look weird to the world, and it should be normal for the Christian. So we we need to say this clearly. If you don't somehow in your heart desire and pursue holiness, which is devotion to God through Jesus according to his word, if you don't somehow desire and pursue holiness, despite what you might officially claim about religious, your religious beliefs, if you don't somehow desire and pursue holiness, you're not actually a Christian. And that's part of the mess of our world, right? A lot of times people say, well, I can't go to church. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Now, that's a, that's a complicated argument, right? In a way... In a way, hey, I'm a hypocrite, okay? Aren't you? Do you always follow God's law? No, you don't. In a way, I'm a hypocrite. Church is for people who are honest enough to say, I'm a hypocrite, I need Jesus, okay? Fine. On the other hand, there are lots of people who claim to be Christians and have no desire for holiness. No desire. No desire. And every every reason and excuse is how they can... Get away with not being holy. And in that case, in that case, we need to be clear. The author here is being clear. If you don't desire holiness, you're not a Christian. It's part of being a Christian. Some important clarifications. Number one, I'm not talking about perfectionism, right? I'm not saying, like, there are some Christians who are always perfect in pursuing holiness. There's nobody like that, and let me tell you, you know this already, I'm not like that. It's not a biblical reality. But isn't it about your striving or your practice or your desire? Here's another clarification. I am not saying your personal holiness makes you a Christian. No. No. Jesus loved us and came for us while we were remarkably unholy. Right? So look at here a few examples. Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5, praise God for the gospel. To the one who does not work, okay, that's another way to say not holy. Okay. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, justifies the who? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So the, things that make, the thing that makes you right with God is not your personal holiness, it's trust in Jesus because he's actually the only one with personal holiness, okay? He gives that to you as you trust in him. Here's another one, Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? Who did he die for? The ungodly. And so we remember again, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not our holiness, And 
The Father who has adopted you through Christ says his goal for you is your holiness. And Jesus who came and lived and died and rose and reigns and will return for you, he says he came to make you holy. And he promised to give you the Spirit. And what's the name of that Spirit, the third person of the Trinity? It's the Holy Spirit. So how? I mean, it's a fair question. How could you say you've met this God, been transformed by this God and loved this God, and not want at all the thing he says he's all about? You can't. You can't. So what we're saying is a desire for holiness is a fruit that you're a Christian. It's evidence that you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you want to pursue it. And in context of this passage, with something we need to pursue together. Let's pray that we would be a holy church from the heart, not a legalistic church, a holy church devoted to God through the gospel. Let's pray that we would be wise, gentle, and effective in helping one another be more holy, remembering that that's God's goal for this, what he's doing in our life, that's his good for us. Amen? All right, well, we've only begun to fight. The directives keep on coming. This is what it means to be a holy community. Now we have a group of um, see-to-its. See-to-it. So what does that phrase mean, see-to-it? It's plural. It's for all of us. See-to-it. That means you're supposed to, you have a radar on what's going on. And you realize you have a responsibility and a part to play. This is yours. This is not only for pastors. This is yours. This is ours. See to it. There's a bunch of see to it. What are we supposed to see to it? Verse 15. See to it, no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does this mean in context? I mean, God's grace is, is a big picture thing, right? It's his undeserved love for his people in Christ. And so his grace forgives us, his grace calls us, his grace justifies us, his grace does all sorts of things. What does it mean here to make sure no one fails to obtain it? Well, in context, these are people who have all trusted the gospel and they claim to believe it. And so we're reminded of another thing that grace does. It doesn't just forgive. Grace trains. Grace transforms. Here's an example of that. Look at Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We're used to that, and we love it. Verse 12, what's the next word? Training. Grace trains us to do what? Renounce. What's it mean to Renounce. I'm done with that, right? I'm done with that. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So even though Jesus came for you while you were ungodly, now his grace trains you to say, I'm renouncing that ungodliness. I don't want it anymore. I'm renouncing world passion, worldly passions. I don't want them anymore. I'm going to live self-controlled, upright, and a godly life in this present age. And the reason he mentions this age is because this age is the hard place. It's, it's the hard part for living a, a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. It's, it's weird to do that. It'd be difficult to do that. But his grace, his love, his presence with you will enable you 
to move towards holiness. And so you see, as a church, we're supposed to see to it that nobody misses that. I want, we want to see to it that you didn't think that Christianity was only you heard the gospel once and you prayed a prayer and then that's all. I'm glad you heard the gospel, and I like that you prayed that prayer to give your life to Jesus. That's not the finish, that's the start. And now we want to seek this God according to his grace, and so we want to make sure that nobody misses that. We want to keep one another enduring for Jesus and grabbing onto this grace that trains. There's another see to it. Look at verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Well, what is that? Uh, Sometimes we think here it's bitterness as in like um, grudges towards others that are unforgiven. I I think that's possible, but I'm not convinced that's the best translation. As usual, this author is working from the Old Testament. Have we noticed that? (laughs) Yeah. And, and uh, this, this sounds just like a passage in Deuteronomy 29. So listen, listen to Deuteronomy 29, 18. Beware, lest there be, any among, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. See it? One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I'll be safe, even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This root of bitterness is about your heart. And here's what's happening in the passage you're still participating in the religious community, you're doing it externally. You're participating externally, but in your heart, there's this kind of self-knowledge you know you don't actually love Jesus, and you're really interested in living for this world, and you think you can do both and get away with it. As you keep reading Deuteronomy, God's real clear, you won't get away with it, okay? He sees your heart. He sees your heart. And so then there's this community responsibility now where we're supposed to love one another in such a way that if for some reason we saw this duplicity, right? Because ultimately this is hypocrisy. That's what this is. If we saw this duplicity in the heart where somebody was like, oh yeah, Jesus, but there's distinct things in their lifestyle that contradict what Jesus has called for, that's the root of bitterness. And the reason it's a root is because it's deep in the ground. You don't see it, but it's going to bear fruit. And you see how in Hebrews it says it can defile the community. And, and the bottom line here, this is just human reality. I know everything in our culture tells us we are just individuals, right? You're an individual. You are self-made. And everything you believe, it's because you're so brilliant and you discovered it yourself, Right? And the reason we believe that is because our culture told us to. I know I'm an individual because my community told me. We are deeply formed by our communities, more than we know. We are all suffering from modern Western hyper-individualism, more than we know, and it shows itself in masses of ways. 
We are formed by our communities, which is another reason why the local church you commit to is immeasurably important. It's so important because your community will influence you. Just in regular ways over time, you will be influenced. It can't help. It's human. It's human. We're community creatures. And you will influence your community. You will influence your community. The more and more I care about holiness and emphasize the gospel, the more and more that's a blessing to you. And if I didn't do that, if I started playing the game and going one way in my heart and another way with my mouth, that would influence you. Obviously, I might have a bigger influence because I'm, I'm preaching most of the time. But don't let that think. Listen, you have an influence on us. You have an influence on you. Are you influencing you to love Jesus from the heart and be holy? See to it that there's not this root of bitterness, which is really this root of hypocrisy, that we would say we love Jesus while actually loving the world. All right, and, and everything I've said, it's been punchy, confronting. We're all like, yes and amen. Are you ready for the hard one? Okay. Verse 16, you ready for this? See to it that no one is sexually immoral. So, see to it, church community, that none of us are sexually immoral. That's God's command for God's people. How do you feel about that one? You know, it's worth asking in this cultural moment, what does that even mean? What does it even mean? Our author and his shared culture with these people, he could, he could say that and leave it. They knew what he meant. In our day and age, what does this mean? How would our cultural moment answer the question, what is sexual immorality? Get a variety of answers, but I think as a trend, you could, you could say sexual immorality pretty much just means anything that's not consensual. People pretty much agree on that, even though that's flimsy ground. But our culture would say, well, anything that's not consensual, but anything else pretty much with fewer and fewer boundaries by the day, anything else is a go. Anything else is a go. So you can see how, right, this timeless Christian position. What is the timeless Christian position? Sexual practice belongs in a marriage between a man and a woman. It's been the same, same thing all, all the way. You can see why this position is seen not as just unintellectual, but it's seen as bigoted and evil, right? It is seen as bigoted and evil. So I think it's worth raising the question, spending a couple minutes on this. Why do you think the Christian message on this has become so repulsive, especially in the last few decades? I mean, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember people on both sides of the political aisle talking about how great traditional marriage was. Do you guys remember that? It wasn't that long ago. Historically speaking, it was like 30 seconds ago. How did the Christian message become so repulsive so quickly? I'm going to give you my theory. I think it comes down to a contest of religions. It's a contest of religions. So the popular religion of our times is increasingly secular. And secular means... Meaning and value is found in this world, here, in the here and now. So to be clear, secular doesn't necessarily mean atheist. Oh, no, you can be spiritual and very secular. 
It's a whole view of the spiritual things that are in this world, of this world. And the difference is there's no transcendent, personal, holy God the world ought to be looking towards. Not in secularism. And so this religious contest between secularism and Christianity has enormous implication for how you understand your sense of self, the value of your body, and sexual ethics. It always has. It still does. So just just to raise this question, imagine talking to your friend. How do we know who we are and what we're here for? How do we know what sexual morality is or should be? How do we know? And the dividing line, the dividing question of our day is, are these things invented by us or received from someone else? So to our cultural moment, which is increasingly secular, there is no holy transcendent God who designs us for our good. Oh, no. Rather, the prevailing belief is that our bodies are just a product of random evolutionary chance, right? So therefore, we're told that our bodies are not part of our personhood. We're just, they're machines to be used by our minds and our inclinations according to our desires. We could do with them as they please. Design doesn't play into it. It's all desires of the moment. And so to that more secular way of believing, identity, meaning, value, sexual ethics are invented, right? We invent and express ourselves as we desire. Who's to say what's right for you to do with your body? What's the cultural narrative? You are. Any boundaries on that? Not really. Not really. Moreover, I think it's true we are told more and more often that it's, it's not just your, uh, that we self-invent the sexual expression, but that it's become the core of who we are. We've, we've bought the story that, that our core selves are, um, is, is sexual expression. In fact, that's what gives you identity and meaning. It's how you express that. In fact, if, uh, some voices would say, if you're not sexually expressive or active, it can be wondered by our culture if you have any meaning or fulfillment at all, right? You're just a non-person. So these deeper religious convictions are why this one argument of Christianity is so distasteful. Because when we say no sexual immorality according to this, this group of assumptions we have from God's word, to our culture, we're, it sounds like we're denying people's very meaning and identity, doesn't it? We're denying their meaning and identity. And so it's scandalous, bigoted, evil that we would say such a thing like, see to it that there's no sexual immorality among you. But we still have to disagree. We still have to say it, don't we? We still have to say there is such a thing as sexual morality. Why would we do that? It's because we have truth, and it's so much more loving and beautiful. And do you know how wonderful it is to not be caged by the meaningless despair of this world only? Secularism is hopeless. We know that there's a holy triune God. He created everything according to his good design. And so we don't invent things like identity, meaning, and sexual ethics. We receive them as a gift from a good God as defined in his word. And so here are some things we know. We know that we are wonderfully designed for a good purpose. 
It's a gift to us. We don't invent ourselves. No, our freedom is aligning with that good design. Freedom is to align with design. And therefore, we know our bodies are not simply machines that we use for pleasure. They have incredible value and dignity. Our bodies are part of our personhood that gives our bodies dignity. For Christians, you realize, listen to what we believe, your body will be resurrected. You will be embodied forever. The body is valuable. And will you still have meaning and identity without sexual practice in heaven forever and ever? Amen. Of course. Of course. Not only will our bodies be resurrected, friends, for Christians, our bodies are temples. It's the highest dignity you can conceive of. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Look at this next phrase. You are not your own. Do you know how radical that is in this time? Can you say that with me? I am not my own. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God where? In your emotions? In your mind? Well, yes, yes. But especially with your body. Your body. Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your worship. Your body glorifies God. So my identity, is it fundamentally sexual practice? No, my identity is belonging to God through Jesus Christ. And so this reality puts sex where it belongs, right? What what, what do Christians want to say about sex? Well, just real simply, sex is a wonderful gift from God. Amen? Yes. Designed to be a covenantal act between a man and a woman in marriage. Sex is the body making a promise. It's living out that marital covenantal vow And it says, I'm yours all the way and in every way. And friends, even science shows that's the design. Did you know that when folks have sex, chemicals are released that encourage trust and commitment? Unbelievable. It's made to be a relational glue, to hold two people together. Of course, it brings life. But sex is not everything. Can I even say that in today's world? Sex is not everything. It is not our core identity. We do not worship it. We do not live for it. Can you say that? We do not live for it. We receive it and use it as God has designed. But back to holiness. Back to holiness. If it's true that God has designed it in this way, listen, here's the reality. Because we are sinners, we will all have desires that stray from God's design. Yeah? Who among you hasn't had a desire in this realm that doesn't stray from God's design in one way or another? Everyone does. It's part of our sin. It's part of our sin that we would have desires like this. 
But those who have met Jesus, what do we want now? We want to be holy, devoted to God in every way, especially in how we understand and use our bodies. So there are a hundred implications from this idea I'm sure you're aware of. But I'm going to mention one right now. I'm not, just, I'm not thinking of anybody individually, okay? So know that. Stats tell us pornography is rampant in the churches of Jesus Christ. Pornography is rampant. To our culture, participation in watching pornography, it's normal and not a big deal. It's just entertainment. It's okay. What's it telling you? What's it telling you? You guys, it's a secular worship service, and it's telling you lies. It's telling you lies. It's telling you lies about men. It's especially telling you lies about women. It's telling you lies about what they're worth and what they're for. We are so hypersexualized in this culture. So we speak especially women, that's what they're for. And if they don't live up to the glossy whatever, they've lost their value. Friends, that is secular paganism at play. It's idolatry. It's a contest of religions. And so to join in this, believing this lie about the body, about men, about women, about our value, about who we are, about what we're for. It ruins our ability to enjoy godly singleness. That's right, I said it. Enjoy godly singleness. Every Christian will have a season of enjoying godly singleness. Some will do it their entire lives and then enjoy marriage to Jesus. Singleness is a part of being a Christian, either before or apart from or after marriage. And it can be good. Our identities are not in sexual practice. Not only does porn ruin your ability to enjoy godly singleness, it ruins your ability to enjoy godly marriage. Ruination about expectations. The science, again, porn rewires your brain like an addictive drug. It releases chemicals, and that's why you want more and more and harder and harder. And it is absolutely unholy. It contradicts our design. It's idolatrous worship. All these things, that's what it is. So back to our passage. Lift your hands. Run the race. Clear the field. Clear the field. See to it that we honor God's design on what it means to be human, the value of the body, what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see to it that no one is sexually immoral. So if you're struggling with this, I just I want to invite you to talk to somebody I want to invite you to talk to me. I will protect your reputation in every way. We'll be as confidential as we can be, but let's beat this thing. If you want to start a group and beat this thing and end porn in your life, let's do it. This is God's call to us. All right, 
See to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Uh, some people have wondered, maybe you did, how was Esau sexually immoral in Genesis? It says, see to it no one's sexual immoral or unholy like Esau. You read Genesis and you're like, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, got a lot of problems, but I didn't see Genesis mentioning that one particularly. And, and he wasn't necessarily the illustration of sexual immorality. That's not the author's point. The author's point is that Esau is a particular example of unholiness of which sexual immorality is one symptom. He's an example of unholiness. So let's learn something here. There's a connection. He sold his birthright for a single meal. Uh, maybe you know the story. It's in Genesis. Just that would be unthinkable to the audience this book. So, that, so there's ancient world cultural stuff here, right? Uh, the firstborn would inherit the most of the family wealth. The reason of that was to provide for and hold the rest of the family together. That's how your family keeps going. So the firstborn inherits in order to provide, protect, hold the family together. So to be the firstborn and receive that birthright is just an incredible, an incredible, an incredible privilege. But this birthright in Genesis is even bigger. This is how God's going to save the world. Abraham, Isaac, Esau's the firstborn. So he's carrying God's plan of redemption here in this birthright, his ability to be the head of the family and lead and provide in this way. And you know the story? He comes, he comes in from hunting. How's he feeling? He's hungry. And what's Jacob cooking? Stew. Such a strange story. Give me some of that stew. I'm hungry. I'll give it to you for your birthright. And then what's Esau say? All right. You know, you may have never heard this before, but Esau is the picture of being secular. That's secularism. What do you think about God's eternal plan? Don't care. What does he think about his desires for the here and now? Is it bad to love a good cup of a stew? Of course not. You trade your birthright for it? That's secular. That's this world is everything. And there's the picture of it. And just the way some of us are shaking our heads like, oh, man, bad choice, right? For a Jewish culture, for him to reject his birthright, it's criminal. It's, it's just unthinkable. It's scandalous. And you see what the author is saying. He's saying, in the way that you're just like, oh, you're cringing over Esau, trading his birthright for soup, that's what it would be like if you traded out Jesus for comfort in this world. Are you going to do that so that you can practice what Jesus has said don't do? Or in their context, are you going to leave worshiping Jesus to go back to the Mosaic law? It's like trading out your birthright for SpaghettiOs. Bad trade. So he's motivating them. Don't give up on your inheritance. And hasn't he said that to us Christians? Remember your inheritance. All right, our responsibility, help each other run the race. Ways we keep that responsibility, we saw a whole list of them. Help one another, see to it that we live holy lives of devotion to God. And now the motivation and the power. We see this in verses 18 to 24. It's like a climax, really, of the book. 
And he's going to contrast the law with the gospel. He's been doing that from the beginning, hasn't he? He's been contrasting the Mosaic law with the beauties of what we have in Jesus. And so he mentions 18 to 21, the mountain, right? When, when God came down on that mountain to give the law to his people. And of course, his audience would have known that. But the main point of it, right, as the holiness of God was physically displayed at the giving of the law, the result was, look, at, Moses shows you, verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. When you see the holiness of God and his hatred of evil, and you come in contact with his law and what he demands, what's the response if you're being honest with yourself? Fear. Because what will you see about yourself? Same thing I see about myself. I deserve judgment. It's terrifying. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, what's the question? Who could stand? And what's the answer? No one. No one. So maybe as you're hearing all this talk about holiness, right? I hope you're, I hope you're confronted. I hope you're challenged. But at the same time, we come before that law and we realize I've been like Esau. I've had, I've had thoughts and desires that don't concur with, with God's design. I haven't sought out peace. I haven't loved my community as I ought to. The law crushes me. You have something better than the law. And that's where you see the gospel, verses 22 to 24. You see this picture of the gospel and the eternally happy community it creates eternally happy. And it reminds you of that because in your journey for holiness, there's a fight, there's a struggle, there's a difficulty, there's a discipline, but it's all for your eternal joy and happiness. And so you get this picture of the community, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem. It's a picture of the city of God, the people of God. And there's innumerable angels dressed for a party, the firstborn, these are the people of God who will inherit. It's us. To the spirits of those made righteous, or of the righteous made perfect, that's, that's going to be us. It's God's people through what he's done for us in Christ. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm. See, the blood of Abel says the same thing that the law said. Abel was a righteous man. He was murdered by his brother. And in that story in Genesis, what's his blood say to God? Judge the evildoer. That's what his blood says. And we imagine all the innocent blood spilled even today and all the voices God's hearing today saying, judge the evildoer. And he will, right? He's the judge of all the earth. But Jesus' blood says something better. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's a righteous man murdered by his brother. His blood speaks, bring justice. Jesus was the perfect man betrayed and murdered, but he's different because he went as a substitute. He went in the place of others, and his blood says something better. Abel's blood says, judge the evildoer. Jesus' blood said, I took the judgment for the evildoers. So justice then, Heavenly Father, is to give them grace and mercy. Give them mercy. 
Give them mercy. And so we come back to the gospel here. The motivation for being holy is not I can be so good so that one day God will love and accept me. That will never occur. You will never be good enough is to look to the one who God has accepted, Jesus Christ, and trust yourself to him knowing that in him you are righteous and given the Holy Spirit and then rejoicing in his promises to you. That's the power for pursuing holiness, that we belong to God through Jesus Christ, that we are a part of this new covenant. So how are we going to respond? Our Heavenly Father loves us, and He's disciplining us to make us holy. He's doing that often through suffering. How are you going to respond? Because you look to Christ, take up your responsibility of walking with one another so that we might be holy in our peace, our love for Jesus, our sexual ethos, how we live with our bodies, all because we belong to God through Jesus Christ. Because friends, this is for our joy. Amen? It's for our joy. Let's pray. A huge word today, Lord. So many things to consider. But Lord, we see the obvious truth. You want us to be holy. And you work in our lives to do that through suffering. You also want to work in our lives through one another. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would inspire us, give us wisdom, move us towards Christ, and help us be the kind of community you are forming us to be, a holy community, pleasing to you in every way because we are grounded on and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.